Welcome to Copy Time, a podcast series on markets and economies from DBS Group Research. I'm Tamir Beg, Chief Economist, welcoming you to our 77th episode. I'm excited about this one. There are macroeconomists and economic historians, and then there is Barry Eichengreen. He's a George C. Pardee and Helen N. Pardee Professor of Economics and Political Science at the University of California at Berkeley. His contribution to economics and international finance stretches over four decades. Consider his seminal book, Golden Fetters, the Gold Standard and the Great Depression, published in 1992, or the co-authored volume In Defense of Public Debt, published just last year. In between, Professor Eichengreen has delved deeply into exchange rate regimes, trade and monetary unions, financial market contagion, banking crisis, global international financial architecture, and all of these in the context of now or a century ago, and across events in the US, Eurozone, China, Latin America, and so on. So truly an honor to have him on board today. Professor Barry Eichengreen, welcome to Kopi Time. Thank you, Tamur. Uh, you're making me feel long in the tooth. That's so relevant then and now. Um, Professor, uh, I have just read a long list of your expertise, but I didn't mention post-conflict reconstruction. Neither did I talk about sanctions. But you've been writing on these issues lately, given the war in Ukraine. So let's begin there. In a recently published article in Project Syndicate, you wrote that talking about a Marshall Plan for Ukraine is a popular sport nowadays, but Ukraine's reconstruction must be done with full appreciation of the most relevant features of the plan that was put in motion post-World War II Europe. So if you may, walk us through those features from your historical study. I, I should probably start by <clears throat> mentioning the context for that historical study. I did my work on uh, the history of the Marshall Plan, some together with my colleague Brad DeLong, some together with uh, former student and now colleague Mark Uzin at the beginning of the 1990s because everybody was thinking about a Marshall Plan for Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union. So uh, the context was different. Obviously, there was no war raging in that part of the world at the time. Um, uh, so the situation in, in, in Ukraine is somewhat different now, although I think Marshall Plan history is relevant once again. So I would, I would make a, a couple of points uh, building on that um, post-World War II uh, experience. First of all, um, Marshall Plan funds began to be dispersed uh, even before uh, the conflict in Europe was entirely over. So uh, the, the war with Nazi Germany was certainly over, but there was still a civil war raging in Greece through 1949 uh, into 1950. And Marshall Plan funds began to flow from the United States to the recognized government of Greece already in 1948. So uh, one hears sometimes today that we should wait until the conflict in, in, in Ukraine is over, until the Russians withdraw or whatever, before we begin to provide aid for reconstruction as opposed to, to military aid. I think Marshall Plan experience shows that uh, thoughtfully administered and, and, and dispersed, we can begin to provide aid for reconstruction once the West uh, of the country is secure, for example, uh, already today. Um, secondly, uh, there has been talk of, uh, uh, about whether 
we, the West, should be providing mainly grants or loan guarantees. And it's worth recalling that uh, European countries came out of World War II heavily indebted, and we provided grants rather than uh, more debt, if you will. And I think that's relevant to Ukraine today as well. They, they looking forward, are, are going to face a difficult problem uh, of debt renegotiation. They're going to have to restructure the debts that they inherited from the pre-war period. Their economy will have shrunk. Uh, those negotiations will take time. So I don't think we should add pile more debt on top of the existing debt, if you will. And finally, there's the the question of how a Marshall Plan for Ukraine should be structured and administered. I don't think it should be administered by the Bretton Woods institutions, for example, by the IMF and the World Bank. Russia being a member of the IMF and the World Bank uh, and uh, in a position, therefore, to throw a wrench in the works, if you will. The um, uh, brilliance of, of the Marshall Plan was that the U.S. government set up a autonomous self-standing agency that could cut through red tape and wasn't uh, answerable, directly answerable to the bureaucracies of the U.S. State Department and the U.S. Treasury Department. And I think uh, a, a self-standing international agency, maybe under the umbrella of the United Nations, uh, maybe under the umbrella of the OECD, would be the right way to go for Ukraine as well. Would you consider EBRD or the European Union along the same lines? Well, I would I, I, I would be prepared to consider EBRD. Um, EBRD did not exactly distinguish itself in its early days. Um, in, in, in the early 1990s, it became famous more for, for building lavish headquarters with, uh, with a lot of marble than it did in dispersing funds. But it is presumably leaner and meaner now. And uh, I, I would um, uh, consider that. Uh, I, I don't think um, reconstruction of Ukraine is going to be an exclusively EU endeavor. We're going to want to in, in, in enlist the support of the United States and, and Japan and others. So uh, the European Union, the European Commission is clearly going to have to play a leading role, whether it should house This autonomous agency, though, is another matter. If I may ask you one more follow-up question, what's your view on the refugees? So Ukraine is blessed with many skilled workers. Some of them presumably will fill the labor market gap, the skills mismatch that Poland had before this conflict. Uh, and of course, you know, the U.S. is granting large number of green cards to Ukrainians and so on. For the post-conflict rebuilding, would you want the refugees to go back as soon as possible. Is that what we saw in the case of Europe post-World War II, or it was the case that, you know, many left regardless and many stayed on and that was sufficient? Well, in the case of, uh, of Ukraine, I think it is critically important to reverse the brain brain. Uh, among other things, Ukraine had a, a relatively small but vibrant high-tech sector. Uh, people can work remote, so maybe they can work from Poland for a Ukrainian startup. But I think more generally, it it's, will be important to attract back the skilled workers. There was uh, a, a lot of labor displacement after World War II, a lot of voluntary and some involuntary movement 
of labor from from the east to uh, to the west. The big problem after World War II was rebuilding the housing stock and uh, thereby allowing people to move back to the urban centers and the industrial centers where their labor was needed, where they were most productive. And this is going to be a big problem for Ukraine as well. They want to attract back the refugees, skilled workers, but they're going to have to be able to house them. And uh, it will take years to rebuild the housing stock. So I think um, uh, modern technology can be part of the solution there, modular housing and so forth. But where you can rebuild a bridge or a railway virtually overnight, pontoon bridges and, uh, and, and so forth, rebuilding the housing stock takes longer. And that will be a constraint on repatriation. Uh, Professor, I, can, I just want to press you a little more on the IMF World Bank question. I just want to go back there for a second. Um, both institutions have already offered you know, substantial assistance to the Ukrainian government. And of course, Ukraine has had multiple programs with the IMF in the past. I myself, as, my, as an EP, actually worked on a Ukraine program 20 years ago. Um, you wouldn't want those interactions to be suspended even under your envisioned uh, framework. No, I think um, that the uh, agency in, in, in charge of dispersing uh, bilateral aid from the United States to Ukraine, from the European Union to Ukraine, can also work with the IMF and, and, and the World Bank. But it's a matter of who's going to be in charge, Very if well. you will, and what the, um, where, where the organizing center will uh, be housed, and I think it should be housed outside the bank and outside the fund. I don't think your friends in Washington, D.C. are going to be very happy to hear this. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm going to move on to one more subject on the conflict. So this is the first line of an article you recently wrote for the East Asia Forum. Uh, what will be the demonstration effect of Western sanctions on Russia? So it's widely argued that with uh, uh, Western sanctions, and in particular with the virtually unprecedented step of freezing the foreign exchange reserves of Russia's central bank, there will be movement away from the dollar in particular, movement away from uh, reliance on Western financial institutions, both SWIFT as a messaging system, the New York Clearinghouse, U.S. banks, etc. Uh, it's important, though, to uh, observe that you asked not about U.S. sanctions, but about Western sanctions, where <clears throat> the West in this context means not only the United States and Canada and Western Europe, but also Japan and South Korea and Others. So, in the, this context, the West is a, 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 a set of economic and political values, if you will, meaning that there are relatively few places to go. So, the demonstration effect will be to make countries contemplating the possibility that one day they might be in the position that Russia is currently in. Um, China uh, wonders whether. Uh, there could be a more direct conflict with the United States over Taiwan, most obviously. 
uh, such countries will want to hedge their bets. Uh, that will be the demonstration effect. But I think they will quickly come to learn that hedging their bets is not really possible in the short run because there's nowhere to turn uh, and, and building an alternative set of institutions that does create a viable alternative is a time-consuming process. So uh, I think the best case in point is China has been attempting to build an alternative to chips, the New York-based, dollar-based interbank clearinghouse. China's alternative is called uh, SIPS, the cross-border interbank payments system. China has been trying to build it for seven years now, and it hasn't gotten too far yet. I think China's alternative is viable and it will continue to grow, but uh, it won't provide uh, an alternative in the short run. I remember talking to a senior official at Beijing a few years ago, and he argued that we, coming from our Western persuasion, think that without capital account convertibility, a country cannot have a fully international currency. And his argument was, you don't have to have corner solutions, you can have midpoints. Um, I sort of understand the wisdom behind that, but I fail to see it catching traction. I mean, there are many countries which large run large and persistent trade deficits vis-a-vis -vis China, so they can all have some sort of a glorified barter system. You know, you give me stuff, I pay you with RMB, and then I buy stuff from you, and you take the RMB back. Uh, but it hasn't really caught on. I mean, in the last couple of months, we were hearing petro RMB and ruble RMB swap. Um, so you, you remain unpersuaded that anytime soon, we're going to see any seismic movement. Yeah, you know, um, it, we, we can monitor cross-border use of the renminbi in large part through SWIFT. Because the ironic fact is, even though China is building this cross-border interbank payments system, it still sends instructions between for transfers between domestic banks and foreign banks through SWIFT. It still depends on that messaging system. And if you look there, the renminbi accounts for 2% by value of cross-border payments, where the dollar accounts for 40%, and the euro is not too far behind the dollar uh, along that dimension. So uh, the renminbi is growing in importance over the last few years. Its share by value of transactions through SWIFT has risen from like 1.9% to 2.4% or some number in that neighborhood. But it, it's still very far from being a full-fledged rival to the dollar. Absolutely. Um, what about on the issue of weaponization of the dollar, this aspect that the U.S. has pursued twice in the last one year? First, it froze the Central Bank of Afghanistan's U.S.-based reserves, uh, and now large part of Russian Central Bank's reserves are unusable because the same. I mean, that ought to give certain antagonists of the U.S. pause in terms of holding U.S. dollar assets. So it does give them pause, but the point is uh, they don't have a lot of other places to go. They can't move into euros. They can't move into pound sterling. Uh, I recently uh, published a paper together with a couple of colleagues, both at the IMF, uh, observing that over the last couple of decades, there has been gradual 
uh, migration away from dollar reserves uh, in small part toward the renminbi, but principally toward non-traditional reserve currencies like the Canadian dollar and the Australian dollar and the Korean won, those countries are all participating in, 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 in the sanctions. So they do not provide safe havens for countries contemplating moving away from the dollar. Really, the only place to go is toward the renminbi and how freely you will be able to use your renminbi reserves is uncertain, both because of those regulatory restrictions that you mentioned before, and because uh, Chinese banks are reluctant to flaunt Western sanctions too openly for fear of, of secondary sanctions there. China is still heavily interdependent with the West. Chinese banks value their ability to do business with the West. That business is a whole lot more valuable to them than business with Russia. I suppose the wisdom in the post-1991 episode when Soviet Union broke up was that if we move toward economic integration and more liberalization, countries like breakaway Russia or China post-WTO would, as you just pointed out, that have certain interests in place which would make them shy to embrace conflict. Um, I think you still are holding on to the belief that conflict risk can be mitigated if there is deeper integration. Yeah, so uh, we we learned that uh, there is no end to history. We learned that um, uh, economic fostering economic interdependence won't lead to changes in countries, fundamental changes in countries' political regimes. But if they have an economic stake in their relations with rivals, they will think twice about jeopardizing that through geopolitical action. So, um, Russia is kind of proof by counterexample. Mr. Putin, for whatever reason, I hesitate to say in his wisdom, for whatever reason, decided to go to war. And I think uh, we have seen that the economic consequences are for, for Russia are, are very serious, quite profound, and are not going to be reversed anytime in the foreseeable future. Right. That's the demonstration of fact. Um, all right. Enough about Russia and the war. Uh, let's talk about something that commands the headlines every single day. Uh, the great inflation of 2022. Uh, I want to hear your take on it. So I think this uh, in, in inflation will be with us for some time. Uh, we're still going to be battling with this problem in 20. 23, uh, absent a recession. So that's a big caveat, right? Uh, unconditional forecasts of how inflation is going to play out are treacherous, and they don't make a lot of sense because there's one scenario in which the, the U.S. and the world economy continue to expand. And in that scenario, I think in, in inflation uh, above 4%, is going to persist in the United States and in, in, in Europe and Britain more generally. And there is another scenario in, in, in which we do tip into recession later this year or next year, in which case that bet is off, if you will. The pressure of demand 
will be less. Uh, the pressure on on inflation will come down faster of its own volition, and the uh, pressure on central banks to continue to raise rates will be less. So uh, the way I think about the, the 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 problem in the no recession case is that the best case scenario in the U.S. and Europe is that uh, in, in, in inflation comes down next year toward 4%. If the neutral real interest rate, natural rate of real rate of interest is one half of 1%, the Fed has to jack up its policy rates to 4.5% just to keep an, in, in inflation steady at 4 and if the Fed is uncomfortable with four, which it will be, it's going to have to raise rates above four and a half percent. So I think, you know, as we speak today, the markets are, are displaying more volatility and signs uh, of more worry. So they're finally catching up with this scenario, which is the you ain't seen nothing yet scenario in terms of central bank reactions. So uh, if economies continue to expand, I think that's what we will see, continued financial volatility, movement away from risk assets, um, and uh, more than 250 basis point hikes by the Fed, which is what's in the market, all that's in the market at the moment. I haven't quite gotten my head around how the recessionary scenario will play out. Uh, we're all, all collectively only beginning to think about that possibility. I was about to ask you for a probability distribution around the two scenarios, but I think with your last sentence, I think your caveat is well taken. Um, want to ask you one follow-up question on the U.S. dollar and one question on uh, inflation later. Uh, on the U.S. dollar, so you talked about risk aversion. That routinely leads to the dollar strengthening, and now we have perhaps couple of hundred basis points of disinflation ahead of us and a couple of hundred basis points of interest rate ahead of us in the next six to eight months, just this year. So that's 400 basis points of increase in real interest rate. Under this scenario, can the market really be that forward-looking and price in all of it, meaning the dollar has peaked or there's still substantial strength in the dollar lingering for the rest of the year? So exchange rate forecasting is... Uh risky business and and I can put on my academic hat and uh say uh I, I don't have skin in that game, if you will. Uh you know, efficient markets theory tells us that the the markets have priced all this in. They know that the US economy is stronger than many other economies and that will be dollar positive because the Fed is going to be moving faster than other central banks. In response, they know the dollar is a traditional safe haven and, and that um, there will be more volatility favoring safe haven currencies going forward. That, uh, in principle, all ought to be in, in, in the markets already. But uh, uh, 21st century economists, even academics, are skeptical about efficient markets theories. So, you know, the m markets were slow to cotton on to these ideas. Maybe they haven't fully incorporated them yet, and we'll see a bit of additional dollar strength. Indeed. Is a strong dollar not a problem for the U.S. and basically a problem for the rest of the world? I think um, that's what John Connolly would have said. 
right? It's our currency. It's your problem. That's right. Um, Treasury Secretary in the 1970s for for the youngsters among uh, among us. Um, I don't think it's a, a, a problem for the U.S. economy at the moment. Uh, if you look back at the at the mid 1980s when the dollar was so strong and it and that was associated with uh, gaping trade deficits for the United States and the Rust Belt problem, deindustrialization of the heartland, that's not a problem at the moment. The U.S. economy seems to be firing on all cylinders and uh, 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 certainly. Uh, there's excess demand for a lot of things that are in supply chain shortage at the moment. But it's a big problem for the rest of the world because it feeds inflation. Weak currencies feed inflation in the rest of the world, and they create serious uh, debt sustainability problems for countries with dollar-denominated debts. So we're going to see more problems develop along both of those lines. So, Professor, in one area where the market seems to be very forward-looking is the supply of the U.S. dollar. So when we look at aggregate indicators of liquidity, it doesn't seem like there is major tightening taking place anywhere in the world. But in the um, uh, dollar desks around the world, there is, you know, already you can see this sort of panic around not there not being enough dollar and so on. Um, so that that I find interesting that Quantitative tightening hasn't come yet, but uh, people are charging a premium in their local currencies for dollar supply. Um, on the inflation, I read recently this book by um, uh, Charles Goodhart, uh, which came out last year, where his point was that the next two decades or so would be characterized by a spurt of inflation as opposed to the disinflation of the last three decades for structural reasons. Uh, aging, contrary to what we thought in the context of Japan, is actually going to be inflationary. Um, deglobalization is going to be a fact of life that's inflationary as well. And China, you know, both suffering from deglobalization and aging would also contribute toward inflation. So what's your view on this structural inflation story? I have immense respect for my uh, colleague, Charles Goodhart. I tend to uh, disagree with him on this one. I look back at the 1970s, and there were central bankers like uh, Fed Chairman Arthur Burns, who cited structural explanations for the high inflation of that decade. But along came Paul Volcker in 1979, and he showed that it's central banks that determine the rate of inflation, that even if there are strong labor unions or uh, big firms with market power or whatever, or, or unfavorable demographics, that would be the current version that uh, tend to create more inflation, other things equal. Those other things are not equal, in particular, central bank policy is not Equal, So I think uh, central bankers' views of what is attainable in terms of inflation and what is desirable in terms of inflation from the point of view of maintaining their credibility and therefore the effectiveness of their policies is that they're going to have to do whatever it takes to invoke Mario Draghi. Right? Yes, indeed. Um, to inflation back down toward target that is within their capacity and that is desirable 
um, regardless uh, of what structural factors, demographic or otherwise, might be pushing in the other direction. How quickly they can achieve that uh, is, is, is another issue. Recall the first rule of forecasting, give them a, a forecast, I just did, or give them a date, never give them both. <laughs> um, you know, I had a question for you. I'm reading through that question. I realize it's a rhetorical question, but for the benefit of the viewers of this podcast, I'm going to read it out, but you don't have to answer it because I think you've answered the question in the quotation that I have. So this came out in current history earlier this year, and you wrote, cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin are too volatile to possess the essential attributes of money. Stable coins have fragile currency pegs that diminish their utility in transactions. And central bank digital currencies are a solution in search of a problem. How great are these three sentences? And given what's happening in the last couple of weeks, you've been incredibly present here. I'm not going to press you on this question. I think you, you've summed it up very, very well here. Um, would you like to add anything or we'll move on? Um, yeah, I, 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 I think that speaks for itself. Indeed, indeed. Brilliant. And, and how good does this sound now? Okay, my final question. And this is about your latest book, uh, which was entitled In Defense of Public Debt. And those who have not read it uh, should, uh, because it talks about the productive aspects of public expenditure fueled by public debt that can help. And those of us who have worked in Bretton Woods institutions for long have struggled with how to account in the fiscal side expenditure that matters for long-term growth and not. I highly recommend this book. Um, but this is a difficult year for anybody willing to issue debt. Uh, we already have in the emerging markets, you know, debt defaults and makings of debt crisis. So what's the way forward for governments who, which are already heavily indebted? I don't think there's a single way forward. Certainly, um, low-income low countries and some middle-income countries are going to have to restructure their debts. The international <clears throat> policy community has acknowledged that fact already for a couple of years now. So they came out with a uh, debt sustainability initiative back in 2020 toward the beginning of the COVID crisis. Uh, but there has been very little progress in actually implementing that and only a small handful of countries that have approached the authorities and their private creditors to restructure debts that are, are, are clearly not sustainable. So we're going to have to keep trying and, and try harder to deal with that problem. On the other hand, there are uh, advanced economies, uh, the United States, most of the economies uh, of the European Union, Japan, which don't have an immediate crisis of debt sustainability because uh, R is still less than G because the effective real rate of interest paid on those debts is less than the real growth rate of their economies. They're able to grow the denominator of the debt to GDP ratio faster than the numerator unless they continue to add to the numerator rapidly by running big primary budget deficits. I do think that we need to look forward to a uh, uh, era when maybe growth is going to be slower because of Charles Goodhart's unfavorable demographics, when the real interest rate is going to begin to trend very slowly and gradually upward. It tends to move 
slowly over historical time, when that relationship will be less favorable from the point of view of debt sustainability. We're going to have to think as well about the next crisis when governments are going to have to do whatever it takes, including on the fiscal front. So we've learned that crises come more often than we used to think, that the period of the great moderation is over and there will be another uh, global financial crisis or pandemic or climate change related crisis that will require deploying the available fiscal resources. So those are both arguments for moving in the direction of fiscal consolidation once or assuming that recovery is secure. So I think that's what the advanced economies are going to have to do. And in the United States, for example, we have come a long way in the last year in terms of of reducing the size of the budget deficit. It's come down from effectively from 14% of GDP to 6% of GDP. How much more fiscal drag do you want to add in the short run, one might ask. But we're going to have to stay that course, I think, uh, in the interest of debt sustainability and in terms uh, of uh, enhancing our capacity to borrow in, in the event of another crisis of some sort going forward. So this problem needs to be attended to uh, immediately in the case of low-income countries, in the medium term, in the case of, of advanced economies. You've touched on a critical issue. I think January, April, I think the uh, Treasury Department's report suggests that the overall deficit in January, April was almost a zero or slight surplus. Uh, and as a result, Treasury supply is, is substantially lower than anything anybody expected. Uh, this has been a tour de force. Uh, Professor Barry Eichengreen, thank you so much for your time and insights. Tamur, thank you. It's a pleasure. And thanks to our listeners, too, for your time. Uh, Kopi Time was produced by Ken Delrich from Spy Studios. Daisy Sharma and Violet Lee provided additional assistance. All 77 episodes of Kopi Time are available on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. And as far as our research publications and webinars are concerned, you can find them all by Googling DBS Research Library. Have a great day.